This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Lighting is one of the most amorphous yet crucial elements of interior design. Lighting can totally transform how and what we perceive and how we feel. Anyone who's ever seen a stage play or dance performance understands how much lighting effects can influence our responses. And with many of us spending increasing amounts of time outside, outdoor lighting has become crucial as well. Add to that all the technological innovations in lighting that have come to the forefront in the past two decades, and it's no wonder designers are confused. Lighting has gone way beyond plugging in a lamp or installing a dimmer. How should a designer think about lighting when conceiving a project? And at what point does it become crucial to factor it in? Are there still basic principles that apply? What do you need to know about the latest high-tech developments? I have with me today two highly successful lighting designers who, if you will forgive the pun, are ready to shed some light on this complex topic. In 1985, Stephen Bernstein co-founded the firm Klein Betridge Bernstein Lighting Design. Since then, the firm's work in residences, corporate headquarters, hotels and restaurants, hospitals, academic buildings, and parks have been honored with more than 175 awards and have been featured in virtually every leading design publication. Hello, Stephen. Hi. How are you, Michael? Great. So happy you're here. Nathan Orsman is the head of Orsman Design with offices in New York, Southampton, and Miami. The firm has designed lighting for residences throughout the United States, as well as hotels in the Caribbean, the Ambassador's Residence in Dublin, and a public library in Connecticut. His work has been widely published, and the most recent of his many awards was for the restoration of the lobby of the Sherry Netherland. Welcome, Nathan. Hi, Michael. So I'm so happy you're both here. I, you know, the, you both do very specialized aspect of design, crucial but specialized. So I'd love to start out to get a sense of how you got into this, we won't say arcane, but somewhat, you know, unusual aspect of design. So, Stephen, why don't we start with you, if you could tell us a little about your background, your education, how this came about. Sure. I have a very, uh, unfortunately, long story. I'll try and make it as short as possible. I actually have a uh, accounting and marketing degree from Wharton. That's how I started my career. My first job out of college was I was an executive for Bloomingdale's. So I worked there really in its heyday when it really was a cultural force. After and it was a long heyday. I remember yeah, it well. Yeah. After a period there, I realized this wasn't the right fit. So I actually did What Color Is Your Parachute? It was a self-help guide that was popular then. Hugely popular. Yeah. And it really helped me kind of clear away a lot of the noise that you have and you have for yourself in terms of thinking about these things. And through doing the exercises, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to do theatrical lighting design. It was always something that I, that I loved. Anything that kind of brought me joy seemed to have some relationship to lighting in some way, whether it was my photography or my drawing. I was always trying to capture light. 
I realized I would not like that life. It was not for me. I didn't have the stamina for it, nor the nerves to... Lots um, of ups and downs in the theater business. Exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) A friend of mine was actually talking to her boss and mentioned my predicament. And she said, oh, you know, my, my best friend is a lighting designer, Leslie Wheel. Why don't you have him call her? So I called her, and uh, in her usual gruff but loving way, she said, oh, you don't know anything. You know, I <laughs> told her a little bit about my stuff. She said, oh, you, don't, you don't know anything. Just call Jim Knuckles. Jim at the time had created a certificate program of lighting at Parsons. So I spoke to him, met with him. He was very gracious. I began taking classes there. He actually hired me to help do some business work, and then I eventually was put on design staff. So for, for me, at that time, it was really an apprenticeship, and that's how I learned. Uh, now, we only hire people who have, you know, advanced degrees, masters, let's say. But for me, it was an apprenticeship. I, I learned by being around great designers. Yeah. But also, the field's a lot more complicated and technical yeah. now, which we'll get into. Absolutely, yeah. Right. But Nathan, how about you? What, what was your background? Mine's a little more random. Uh, we love I grew, random. Well, yeah, I, I, I think mine's mine pretty really, random. No, mine's pretty, <laughs> mine's pretty really random. Um, so I, I grew up in Australia and I moved to the U.S. for love that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so many that, don't. Yeah, that we all do, all the Australians <laughs> who are here in some way, shape or form. It's love of people or love of profession. And so when I was here... Where I worked at the Australian Stock Exchange. I went to a boys' school in Australia. I did all the sort of right things, except I dropped out of university, which was not um, such a great thing for my family. Anyway, so when I was living here, I met a lighting designer, and I worked for him for 10 years. And during that time, I really like completely transitioned from what I – in Australia, there was no – concept of growing up and being a lighting designer, at least where at the school that I went to, it was very business oriented. There was no interior design, no, you know, it was very, very sort of black and white curriculum. And so I met this guy, worked with him, really learned on the job, you know, really like play, we just played with everything, right? So it was extremely hands-on. And from there, I just created, you know, just really had a passion for it and it sort of just grew and blossomed from there. So it was really sort of a happenstance sort of thing. Um, but it allowed me to do something that I never thought or even considered, you know, growing up because it just wasn't, first of all, the arts and, and all of those things are very interesting to me, very, very interesting to me. Um, but growing up as a gay guy in Sydney and, you know, back then it wasn't sort of, it just wasn't something you talked about. There's just no one in my school. Well, I don't know. I think anyone is. Yeah, in the U.S., right. I, I don't think anyone is at like the age of eight or nine says, I want to grow up to be a lighting designer. Right, you, know, right. you don't even know or, that. Or exists. designer. Or, or designer. designer right. even. Yes. In a, yeah. in the, where I went right. to school was none of that. Right. So yeah. maybe Australia wasn't very pretty back then. I'm, I think it's getting prettier and prettier, but yeah. yeah. It looks pretty good. <laughs> Michael, I have a funny story. My uh, partner, Francesca Betridge, she told me that, and this was many, many years ago, her daughter came home from school one day in tears. And she says, what's the matter? So she said, I hate what you do. She said, what, what are you talking about? She said, well, everybody else's mother and father, they're lawyers or they're doctors. Nobody knows what a lighting designer is. <laughs> so, and you know something, we still have that problem today. A lot of people just don't know what we do or what we bring to a project. Right. Right. And yet I do think that's changed. I mean, one reason is, Stephen, as you mentioned, they had classes in it at Parsons and certainly now design schools do that. But I do think that even a lot of designers don't understand the importance of line design. And actually one 
I was had a meeting with Anna Brockway, who's the president and co-founder of Cherish itself. And she was saying her one mistake when she redid her house that she wishes she had re- could redo is that she should have hired a lighting designer. Because even when you have experienced designers and who know what they're doing, you know, as I said, it's very amorphous, but it's so important and so crucial. So keeping on the topic of your firms, like I'd love to know, like Stephen, how many people are on your staff and how do you find your your team? We have about 16, 16 designers now, mostly through schools. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of schools that Parsons, certainly New York School of Interior Design has a program, which is good. Penn State has a program. So we draw from there. But we'll, you know, anybody can come join us if you're smart and you're talented and you're passionate about it. Sure. You know, come along. Right. And Nathan, how many on your team? Uh, we have 50 people total. And um, 50. So you know, I have to big. say like, yeah, five zero. Yeah. So in terms of where, where they come from, from us, I really love people with architecture. There's a strong architecture background tends to be personally what I enjoy. I think there's something about people who are interested in studied architecture that seems to relate really well to articulating and understanding light in some way, not so much from the interiors background um, and definitely from lighting courses and lighting, you know, schools and things like that. But for some reason, I always find myself enjoying the architect's perspective of things. Yeah. Right. Now, a lot of designers don't study lighting or haven't taken classes in lighting. And, you know, I was taught, not that I'm a designer, but I was taught over the years, you know, when you think about lighting a room, let, let's, we'll start with residents. I know you guys will do lots of hospitality and other exciting projects. We'll get into that. But re- in terms of residential design, like I was always taught, you know, three levels of light, always put everything on a dimmer. You have a pendant light, you have sconces, you have task light, maybe. And certainly in the 80s, it was big to have up lighters from the floor. I, that seems to have totally gone out of style. But are there rules or there are there, there, principles that apply across the board that you think everyone should know? Or is each case that different? As Nathan, as you were saying, the architecture is so determining of how a place should be lit. But I mean, in some ways, I think it's our primary background is residential. Okay. So we, our, our focus is residential. We do do other sort of crazy, amazing things. But in general, I think, you know, you really have to understand what the client wants, right? So some people want atmospheric, like full on, you know, moody, atmospheric sort of situation. And some people like more light, right? So in those circumstances, when it's more, I think it's like adding more lighting, but doing it in a way that is very soft and quiet to the eye. Like that's very successful, I think. And if you're doing atmospheric, it's tighter beam spreads, less recessed architectural or whatever that might be. And I think in terms of technology, you know, things are getting smaller and they're getting more powerful. So we have issues on dimming. There's all this sort of ugliness to what we do that's difficult. But I think, you know, one of the things that I think conceptually that happens a lot is people preconceive recessed architectural as bad, primarily based upon what they've experienced in their history, right? So they've had terrible lights or someone did it terribly or whatever. And I think as Stephen, you know, can probably attest, we do it in a way that's just so much better for the eye, right? And for the experience and the feel. So, and when I say that, it means I mean less contrast. Contrast is sort of the enemy, right? The part that makes you squint. And so allows your pupil to relax and dilate and then fully understand a room. And so, you know, I think we've come a long way in terms of that, in terms of what we apply residentially. And I think it's probably, Stephen can do a test too, for 
but commercial and institutional work, it's, it's the same. Yeah. It's just not quite as personal, though. For us, in a similar way, I mean, we have this expression in our office that it starts with a conversation, mm-hmm. and it really does. You really have to understand what the client is looking for. You have to really listen, because a lot of times they can't really articulate very specifically what they like or what they need. So you really have to kind of listen, but you have to intuit and do a little bit of research into them and their lives, how they live. Sometimes there's a cultural imperative that seems surprising. For instance, if we do work, we do a lot of work in Hong Kong, and the preference there is for a different color light and for a different amount of light. So we would never approach the project the same way that we would, let's say, in in the States. So it's really kind of understanding, and then Past that, you have to understand the architecture. You have to understand the interior design. You have to understand what the willingness of the client is to maintain that. You have to understand the dimming system and what they require. I mean, there are so many different things that you have to kind of understand. And then we create a composition that will give them what they want. And the dimming is critical to that because you have to balance everything. And with LEDs, it's even more complicated to get the right mix. So that's just an important tool. But you have to know how to make it as simple and as user-friendly as you possibly can. Right. And and I know with the, like LEDs, I remember years ago when I was an editor at Martha Stewart Living, we had, you know, they were bringing in the LEDs, they were bringing in, we were, everybody was such a throw out their old light bulbs, but the light bulbs at that time were really kind of horrible and, you know, very cold and blue and people were in a big dilemma, even what do I put in my home? I have a lamp, and, you know, I'm supposed to take out my incandescent bulb and put it in. And God knows, and, you know, you go to Salone to the lighting and you just can't believe the things that they're doing and how tiny some of these lights are and how big and dramatic they are and da, da, da. So what do you think designers need to know to keep in mind? Are there many more options that are good than there used to be? Nathan, what do you think? Yeah. So first of all, you can never, you can never believe anything. <laughs> okay, good advice. <laughs> so it's really tough because I think from an interior perspective, like most interior designers, you know, we often see when they put a decorative fixture and there's no real concept of the light, right? So they're like, they pick it by a picture, but they don't really know what it does. And that's sort of a, a recurring thing in our business that sort of keeps us employed. Okay? They're so like sculptures, but they also have light with them. But and they're, they're like... Right. And then it can be this horrible color and blah, blah, blah. And then it may not gel well with the room and all that. So, so one thing I'm a big believer in is like, you should know what you're using. You need to understand the tools in your toolbox and what, and what they do at night. Okay. Cause a lot of the times people are picking stuff based on a daytime visual and that's not what happens at night. Right. So, so I think reviewing everything, you should look at the decorative before you buy it. You should see the color temperature of it before you buy it. Similarly, LED light bulbs that go into lamps in the room, you should understand what it is and review and make sure that you enjoy it. And, you know, we spend a lot of time in our business. We have a separate lab dedicated to testing and dedicated to looking at all these things, right? Dimming, color temperature, all this sort of stuff, because reading 2700 on a box can mean one thing, but what it really looks like can be very different. So there's like, they're not very strict in terms of adherence. So, and as we know, in the fields that we work in, 
color is of uh, incredible importance. And especially when working with interior designers, architects, et cetera, they want their work to look the best it possibly can. And so the uniformity oftentimes, or if there's deliberate juxtaposition, but we need to understand like what's in the room and how we make it as peaceful and lovely as possible. One of our primary things that we do is we remember that we're sort of like the backup dancer. The people who are really on stage are the architect and the interior designer, but we're sort of the backup dancer. So we're not really there to be noticed, but we do add a lot to the room, you know? And so what I try to do is when we select everything correctly, there's not a consciousness of problem. It's a very, you walk through a space and it feels right, right? And we've all been to those places, those restaurants, those whatever, where we walk through and we're like, oh my God, it feels so good. Mm -hmm. And then when you start to pay attention, Right. It's it's the combination of architecture, interior, and lighting, that, or music, you know, so the full complement. Right. And it's funny, you know, I always felt guilty about this when I was editor of a magazine, because we sh- would shoot everything during the daytime. And you're right, Nathan, nobody knows, knows what that's like at night. And you couldn't, even if we tried to really illustrate it, it wouldn't be successful. But it is something you, ha- I guess, you have to experience. So, Stephen, what do you think is the biggest mistake that residential designers make? I mean, besides not hiring you guys. Well, that would have been the first thing, Michael. You're (laughs) absolutely right. I'm not letting you off that easy. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Right. Um, Early and often, as they say. You know, I I guess it's a kind of a combination of things. I think it's the reliance on perhaps too few types of things. You know, in a space, you really need a combination of lighting to make a space. I think that there is a lack of appreciation for a well-lit wall sometimes, that proper treatment, because really that's what you, when you think about it, that's really what you see. You're seeing, you know, the verticals around you. I think putting light between people is a wonderful thing to do. And I, I think sometimes it's put behind people and it puts you in silhouette. So I think that that's a problem. We find the color is, Nathan, I mean, that was, that's one of the biggest problems that we have. And we too will turn fixtures on so that if we're mixing different manufacturers, we can be assured that they'll all play well together. That's essential. It's too easy to go into a Home Depot and pull out an LED bulb and you get home and it's the wrong color. And I must say, I just went to a lovely home yesterday and they want to switch everything over from incandescent to LEDs in terms of being sustainable. And it's this this horrible, you know, hospital white. So that's a problem. I think not understanding that these things need to be balanced, that you can't just put them in and expect them to work properly together. So I think that those are just some of the things that we've always run up against that can create problems. Right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. And you both mentioned color, which is so crucial. And I would think that in a way, your tasks have become, your challenges have become even greater 
in this era because now so many, a, so many people are working at home, so they need to have home offices. I think that's one reason that everybody bought those ring lights is because they realize that their lighting is just so bad at home. But also, you know, people collect art now in a, in a much to a much greater degree than they did before. And, you know, you flip the light on and the painting is going to look totally different. So is there something that you do specially for how do you th- how should designers think about these Increasingly important kitchen lighting. God knows, you know, now you see now you see kitchens that have like three or four pendant lights over every counter. And it's like, you know, you feel like you're going through a forest of lights. And back in the in the 80s, when I was coming to New York, you know, art galleries, they all had track lighting. I remember track lighting was huge, but, you know, that could be shining right in your face when you walked in. So how do you address those kind of issues, specific issues? Is there lighting shapes or forms that you like or bulbs? Nathan, what, what, what about you? What's your advice? What, give us, you, give us some free really advice to our poor super designer. loaded question. Well, that's you know, like most, a little free advice like for our designer listeners. Through the forest of the, <laughs> of the pendants. <laughs> um, yeah, get how busy that could be. Oh, look, you know, I, I stand by one of the primary things, I think, then this is a, my piece of advice, is that when you're choosing recessed architectural lighting, one of the things that's the most upsetting in it is the way by which the light potentially hits the interior of the trim, okay? When it meets a vertical surface in a fixture, in other words, when the light comes out and hits a vertical surface, it has more surface to hit and it creates more glare, okay? So ideally, we prefer a tapered recessed architectural light so the light doesn't actually clip that. What I'm going to on this, and the reason that that's so important is as you use multiple fixtures within a room, the less glare you have, the less you see those things. They become much quieter, right? So I think in terms of designing spaces, designing houses, all this sort of stuff, again, we're coming back to that quietness of the recessed architectural and the way by which it works in the room. We want decorative lighting to always work as a decorative fixture. We tend to not want to rely on it for the lighting in the room because typically it has an exposed bulb or it's something, you know, whatever. And as you brighten it up, it actually contracts your pupil more. Okay, so the thinking is decorative should be decorative, soft, beautiful, always look wonderful. And the architectural lighting in the space is the part that really adds that additional layer. When it comes to art lighting, we do do projects where we have tunable lighting and all that sort of stuff. Although I personally tend to like to stick with just one color temperature because I find that it just executes it really well. But sometimes we do it differently. Sometimes we do framing projectors, all that sort of stuff. Framing projectors oddly are we're using more of them again. So that was By like framing projectors. You mean, do you mean like picture lights? No, they, they, they shoot out of the ceiling and they frame. Oh, the I perfectly. see. I see. Okay. Yeah. It's like old school. Right. But we have a few crazy, wonderful projects right now where we're using them again. So I'm interested to see if that comes back. I feel like we've gone through this stage of everything being a little bit overlit. And now I'm interested to see if we're coming back to a bit more of an atmospheric thing, which would be really lovely. Well, it's so interesting that there's, fa- you know, I hadn't really thought about this, but that there's fashions and trends and lightings, just as there are in interior design. It's so interesting, you know, no more track lighting, but now you have a different kind. And we did an episode on trends for this year. And apparently one of the big trends is coming back. I don't know if this will appall you guys or make you happy, but apparently floor lamps are coming back into residential design. So, I mean... How do you feel about that, Stephen? Well, actually, as Nathan was explaining his answer, I was thinking exactly that, that it should be and it has to be acknowledged that lighting, along with every other design element, 
has a style and it comes into style and into fashion and it goes out. For the last number of years, we've been seeing a lot of square down lights or accent lights. And now people are getting a little bit tired of that. They want them round again. None of us are old enough to none of us are old enough to remember the eyelid wall washers, you know, where half of it was blocked out. You know, those come and go. So all of these different things, it goes along with understanding the architecture and it goes along with understanding the interior design. So you're constantly reinterpreting your own designs. You always want the integrity of the quality of the light, but there are so many different ways that you can deliver it and have it appear within the space. So that that's really, that's, I think, really where a lighting designer can really make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you didn't answer about floor lamps. Uh, floor yes lamps, no? we use them. Uh, we're great believers in floor lamps. <laughs> okay, and Torchers, to uh, too. They're pretty good. Okay. Not used sconces? enough. Sconces. Yeah, for the longest time, we've gotten pushback about sconces. But now, uh, Nathan, I, we're seeing more and more people use sconces again. These things, there is a cycle to them. Okay. So now I want to hit on this other big topic is outdoor. Because as we all know, outdoor furniture, spaces, I mean, it's been one of the hugest growth areas in design and homes in the the last 15 years. And, you know, it used to be that you would light your house so that people who are driving by would see it and say, oh, that house is beautiful. But it was not for the people who lived in the house. But now I think that's totally changed. So... Is this a challenge that came easily to you guys? Was this something early on in your studies and your career you started working on and the rest of us just became uh, aware of the importance of outdoor lighting or is it something that you've had to adapt to as well? Nathan, why don't we start with you? That's how I started my career. Oh, you started out as outdoor. Okay. So so we're late to the game. You've been been at this party a long time. Yeah, probably. Um, I still think that I think as, as lighting designers, though, we have a responsibility to do it in a very respectful way, especially when it comes to residential. I personally know that I don't want to do super overlit stuff. We occasionally do it, but it's not what I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. But I, I can agree with you. I mean, I think that um, especially since COVID, you know, we had a whole burst of outdoor eating, right, in New York. And so all of a sudden, rechargeable lamps on tables are like absolutely everywhere. And there's so much variety. And they're, and they're actually really amazing and really I'm sure Stephen, you know, and I've never really spoken before, but when you look in restaurants and you see them on the street, it's sort of exciting to see people actually enjoying doing things sort of the right way, you mm-hmm. know, like little bubbles of light on the table and then darkness around. So I think restaurants and this, this exposure to that, especially in New York, has made us realize, oh, actually, maybe at home we're not doing this so well, and maybe we can do this really well whether it's, you know, wherever the house is or whatever it might be. I think that that's sort of exciting. Again, I just think we do have a responsibility to do this, you know, respectfully. We do it, absolutely. But I like the restraint. And I do want to say, I think one of the most amazing things about being a light lighting designer is that we work, we have a negative. We start off with no light, mm-hmm. right? And then we gently add. And I think lighting is successful when you gently add. I don't think like overlit spaces are just not enjoyable, right? So I think we have to, enjoy the dark. I think we should enjoy the dark, especially outside, right? It's part of what creates the beauty and creates emotion and creates feeling. And so I just say, just do it sparingly, you know, don't do it like you have to make things safe and we have to make things beautiful and all of that. But 
there's, and as I think Stephen was saying too, when he was referencing the interior part, lighting is interesting as well. When there's no architecture between the lights, the lights, when you look in, when you look forward, will read on top of each other, right? So I think when you're working in a landscape or a natural environment, it's important to have the darker moments. Otherwise, trees upon trees upon trees look like just everything is lit, you right. know? So yeah. I didn't really answer it very well, but yeah. Stephen, sorry. Sure. No, I agree. Uh, I think there are two points I guess I would want to make about exterior lighting. One is that you don't need a lot. A little bit will really go a long, long way. And I think people misunderstand that. That's one thing. I think the other thing is that more than anything, you should think about a near ground, a middle ground, and the perimeter. Because you don't want to have this kind of dark surround that makes you feel unsafe. So if you define those different areas and then balance them properly, you'll have a, a really kind of nice composition that you really want to, you want to be there. You want to experience it. You want, you're, you're creating an outside room, if you will. Right. right. But I think that the point you were making about not overlighting the outdoors, well, because now they're showing that without enough darkness, if there's too much light, it's detrimental to birds, it's detrimental to insects, right. all of that stuff. And it's really bad for the environment. But I know there are people, you know, you drive certain neighbors and every tree has got a spot, you know, under light and shooting light into the sky. And it's like, you start to think you're in Las Vegas or something. And it's, it can be very upsetting. But in terms of approaching an outdoor project, because there are so many options, solar, what do you look for in terms of the equipment that you use, the lighting that you use, Nathan, in terms of like, let's say you were doing, you know, a, a garden. Yeah, I believe you've done many in the Hamptons, but, you know, something like that. How, how would you approach that now in terms of what you would be thinking about? Well, I think when you're doing it, so just sort of composed of a few things, you know, you have your, you need to walk around, right? So there needs to be an understanding Pathways. of the pathways, right? And then there's also a hierarchy to that, right? Because we don't want to light everything. So it's like, how do we softly illuminate the pathways that we want to light? We are a big proponent of using path lighting that has absolutely no visibility of the source. So whatever it does is pushing light down and softly in a beautiful way. I tend not to put path lighting hard up against plant material because it creates plumes of light, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to install it in a way that the light is allowed to breathe. And then on top of that, you might want to be selecting like certain trees and things like that, of which we would use what they call sort of bullet lights, right? You want to check the color temperature and all of those. And then you use one or two per tree, depending on the size. Sometimes you use flush to grade lights, like a well light that sits within lawn. So if it's within mm -hmm. planting material, it's going to be on a stake. If it's within lawn, it's going to be flush to grade or a drive over type fixture. The other thing to remember too is that trees are shaped, you know, like this. When you have the lights around the perimeter, you're essentially only lighting the canopy and you sort of miss the trunk. So downlighting, if you're doing it, can do two things. It will anchor the tree to the ground in terms of illuminating the trunk, but can also cast light through the branches to create that sort of dappling effect. Which everybody loves during the daytime. So why wouldn't it right. be wonderful at night? Right. Correct. And then we, we do a lot of cafe type lights to little moments where there's like a, a, a table within trees, or we do decorative lighting hanging within trees, or we sort of build it up that way, which I think is important. We have a lot more options now with that too. I think mm -hmm. a lot of companies making really great lanterns, electrified lanterns, or most of the time we take lanterns and we electrify them ourselves. Right, yeah. right. 
And Stephen, what about your project? Because also you do a number of hospitality, outdoor, mm-hmm. you know, public places. Is that Do you think about that differently than residential? Yeah, the scale is a little bit different. The levels of illumination sometimes are a little bit different. The security issues sometimes are a little bit different as well. But the concepts are exactly the same. You know, we still bring the same sort of thing that Nathan described to any project there. That's always a valid way to to approach a project. Right. And I've noticed in restaurants, indoor restaurants as opposed to outdoor restaurants, a lot more attention being paid to lighting and dramatic lighting and pendant lighting, sculptural pendant lighting, like that, that kind of thing. So again, we're going back to this fashion thing. Do you think that people now, when they go out to eat, are expecting drama in the lighting? It seems to me I've noticed that in more restaurants that I've gone to, but maybe it's just me. I mean, you know, I think everyone's sort of been to Houston's, right? I know mm-hmm. I use this as a reference all the time. So Houston's is, the lighting is very successful in there. Mm. Stephen, maybe you did it. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I could be talking over the top of you here. No, that's um, okay. But it's super successful because the, the program is fixed. The tables never move. Okay. You can never say, I want a table of 12, right? So, because the table never moves, mm-hmm. which means you can pin spot the table really well. So, you know, those types of restaurants where nothing is, everything's fixed in place, the lighting can be incredible. Because nothing moves. Oh, right? that's an interesting point. I never thought yeah. of that. And that's why you walk in, you're like, wow. But then once you build in and you have a degree of flexibility, Stephen and I have to do a very different type of thing, right? And so we tend to sort of do a little bit more of an ambient layer and then add things specifically to, for poignancy, whether it's art or flowers or whatever that might be. But I think lighting is increasing in, in terms of people wanting that experience. I mean, we know when we go into these restaurants where you're like, oh my God, this is great. You know, like really great. Who doesn't love that? Restaurant lighting is one of my pet peeves because... Uh, <laughs> I'm a pet peeve. Why can't I ever read the menu without pulling out an iPhone? That would be my pet peeve. You but. know, first of all, if you're going to... It, it, I don't know. I, I just think they're too dark for the most part. When you can't see the color of your food, you've gone too far. And it happens so much. And there's this trend in, I think, in newer restaurants where there's almost like a lack of design and there's only the food is really the only thing. So there aren't tablecloths. There's no real kind of attention to design in any way, shape or form. And I think lighting is just one of those elements. I don't find that so much in Europe, I must say. There just seems to be, it can be brighter and it's, it can be romantic and it can be friendly and it can be celebratory. We haven't gotten it quite right yet in the United States, I think. Italians like the bright table. They want to see the food. Yeah. That's all there is to it. I mean, you, it's crazy. And I do think there's a shift away from those super dark I mean, you know, it used to be the bar would be like beautifully right. lit and then the tables would be like, where am I? You pull out your iPhone. But I do think there's a shift away from that. And I think there's a shift away from these very bare bones, no design restaurants. I mean, I used to joke, I like the idea of farm to table, but why does it always have to be a farm table? <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, can we, you know, but there's nothing wrong with designing a space. I think, right. you know, and I think that young people seem to be 
more interested in that than they used to be, which I, I think that and they're you know, they're filling the restaurants in New York City, at least. And I think that that's a good sign. I think they're looking for experiences as well as the food. I think the food is yes. obviously important, too. But they look for it. It's a night out, especially as everybody's working more from home. When you go out, you want to feel you're really out. And, you know, it's like going to this, like I mentioned in my intro, going to the theater, you know, I'm always amazed. You'll, you'll see a scene and then suddenly just nothing changes on the stage except the lighting. And it's a totally different mood. It's a totally different space. It, to me, it's like magic, you mm-hmm. know? I don't know how that has happened, and which is, you know, I think what you guys do is so important and I think is undervalued in, by a lot of certainly residential designers and some restaurant and hospitality designers. But, you know, and the other problem in darkness besides restaurants is, you know, I've been in a couple of hotels. I cannot find the room number. Right. I, it's like the hallways are so dark. I was like, I don't want to stay in a disco. I want to be able to find my bed in the end of a long day. But I think there is a shift away from that. And people are, I'd love to get a sense from both of you. Do you think there is a greater appreciate? I mean, your partner's daughter, obviously, is exceptional. She's crying about what she does. Well, this was a long time ago. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But do you think that there's a greater awareness? Are more designers coming to you early on when they're planning their things? Yeah. 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 Definitely. I I think there's a much greater realization of what we bring to a project and the value that we bring. And I think also that it's gotten so complicated with the LEDs. That's number one. Uh, In a more positive way, I think the potentials are so much greater because of the small size of what we can do in terms of color, just in terms of effects, that it's really beyond the capabilities of architects and interior designers. So you really need that specialist. The earlier that we're brought into the project, the absolute better it is because we can kind of stake out a claim in terms of recessing depth or cove dimensions or just the architecture in general. So that's critical. And that for the projects that we're involved in, we always get hired very, very early and start the process very, very early on. Is that true for you, Nathan? Have you found that you're getting more people are coming to you very early on? Yeah. I mean, we still have our last minute, like, <laughs> fix this. <laughs> I have one tomorrow morning. Me. I have one tomorrow morning. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like, really? Well, you know, you can't come to last minute because you can't get the materials. So, right. That's the other problem. Especially these days. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. I think, look, there's always been a, we're, we're in very fortunate fields where there's create, where each year there becomes more and more interest. And there's a technical part that's, in, you know, ensured our employment, right? Just right. complexity. And the way by which we manage that, which really takes a massive amount of stress off the team in general. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think once we've done it, it tends to be for us, you know, and I'm sure for Stephen as well, once you've done it a few times with a certain client, they understand what they're getting and they understand what they're getting at the end. And it just solidifies the whole thing, you know, so, yeah. No, and I could see like a designer works out a whole elaborate palette, mood board, fabrics and everything installs it with beautiful exact color they want the paints everything and then the lights come on and it's like <laughs> what happened Correct. you know so i i imagine one one or two heartbreaks like that those designers will well, be calling you guys what's also interesting too is is that the designers they finish the rooms and do the they finish when we go to night set where they're sunset onwards right they're out of there an hour beforehand you know, and I love all the people we work with, but they're tired, right? <laughs> so we really, we really do the night shift. 
You know what I mean? So it's actually interesting as I think in the end, they get to see their projects potentially one or two times at night or whatever it might be. But the bulk of what they do is daytime. And then we really are responsible for the night, right? And in order to do that, I've spent my career looking at things at night. I mean, any lighting designer who who is not going to come and trim the lights, change the lights, tune the lights, and don't even talk to them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even for us, when we're when we're working with lighting control people, if they're not willing to work at night, we're not working with them. You know, because it's you're you're installing a system that's designed to create all this beauty, and it happens post sunset. You know right. what I mean? So, very good. Point. I mean, it's good. So it's a, it's a career that keeps you out of trouble because you can't, <laughs> you can't and, go out at night. <laughs> yeah, and it's a career that's really good in winter when it's dark early. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's yeah. That's funny. the the worst is having a focusing on June twenty first. Then we've right. had them. Let me tell you, ten yeah. o'clock, yeah. ten thirty, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, uh, that's mm-hmm. funny. That's funny. I hadn't even yeah. thought of that. That yeah. Well, you know, I found this so informative. It made me realize even more how much I don't know about lighting, but that's very valuable too. So I want to thank my two titans of the night, Nathan Orsman and Stephen Bernstein. And thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.